0: You know, I think it would just absolutely break him because he says, I could just go in there and, and lie and say, okay, I'm sorry, let me out. You know, he could say it. He goes, I will never admit to something that I didn't do. Michelle wouldn't want me to do it, he says. He says, people around him, just say, just Leo, just say it. If that's all they need to hear. But he's so adamant. He just says, all you're asking me to do is lie about this and I can get out of prison? It makes no sense to him. He says, it's easier for me to do the time than to live with this lie. I'm Nicola Talent. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld
1: in Ireland and across the globe. When Gilbert King was asked by a judge to look into a case of wrongful conviction, he was shocked by the request and intrigued by the story. Michelle Schofield was murdered in 1987 and her husband Leo, who protests his innocence, has remained behind bars for the crime ever since. In King's new podcast series, Bone Valley, he looks at the trial which puts Schofield behind bars, the shocking new evidence which puts a convicted murderer at the scene of the crime, and the tragic case of a young woman. I'm Chloe Domeni, and this is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So Gilbert King from Bone Valley Podcast, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about where you kind of started, where you got, how you got involved with this story that we're going to talk about today.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I was, I'm an author. So I was right. I wrote a book called Devil in the Grove, which came out a few years ago. And uh, I got invited to speak at this judicial conference for a bunch of judges down in Florida. And at the end of the talk, I was um, signing books and this judge handed me his business card. And I kind of flipped it over and it said, not. He said Leo Schofield, his prison number, and said not just wrongfully convicted; he's an innocent man. And I remember looking at the card, going like, "A judge is not supposed to do that." It's a you know a current case at the at that time. And I went out to dinner with some um, defense lawyers that night, and I told them about the card and I showed it to them, and and they were like, "A judge gave you this?" They were kind of shocked by it. And finally, went to one of the uh, public defenders, and he said, "I know this case, the Schofield case. You should call that judge," and. That made me curious. So a couple of days later, I called him back and he started telling me all about the Leo Schofield case. And he said, this guy was railroaded. I know exactly how it was done and I'm willing to talk about it as a judge.
1: So you were kind of hooked straight away from that, especially because it's, you know, the, the tip is coming from an interesting source, right?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I get sources and tips all over the place, but I've never had like an actual sitting judge tell me that there's a guy who's been railroaded in the Florida court system. It just, it doesn't happen that often. And so I was curious, you know, I'm still a little skeptical because, you know, you can be a crazy judge too. <laughs> and uh, of so I was a little skeptical, but when I started asking around about it, people said, Oh, you should definitely call this guy. And when I finally called him back, I got back to New York. I finally called him and he was just going off. He knew all the details of the case. He says, they railroaded this guy. I can tell you exactly how they did it. And, you know, I was a little bit interested. I was curious, Um, but I said, you know, I'm in the middle of a book. I got to finish this book. And I could just sort of feel how deflated he was like that. You know, this maybe it'd be a couple of years before I could get to it. Um, And he said, well, do me a favor, just read the trial transcript. And I I sort of said it maybe to get him off the phone a little bit. You know, I said, all right, I'll Mm -hmm. read the transcript. And he sent it to me and I started reading it. And, you know, I pretty halfway through it, I was like, wow, this guy Uh, This case doesn't make any sense. I I could see it right then that none of the state's evidence was really making sense. It didn't have any logic behind it. Um, And at that point, I said, you know, I did read the transcript. I want to ask you some questions. And that's sort of how the whole story started for me.
1: So tell us a little bit about then, I suppose, the main characters in this story. We've got Michelle Schofield, who is the victim in this case, and Leo Schofield, her husband, who was put behind bars for her murder. Tell us a little bit about him and and kind of the story around her murder and, and everything like that.
0: Yeah. And it's really interesting because he was a transplant. He came down from Massachusetts. So he's got this, you know, thick new England accent. And now he's down in the deep South of Florida and he's, you know, 21 years old. He meets 17 year old Michelle Schofield. You know, he wants to be a rock and roll guitarist and she's, you know, waiting tables. They're, you know, a very young couple. Um, and they end up getting married when Michelle was just 18 and, and, and Leo was 21, I believe. And, um, you know, they're having a normal life, but they have a lot of disagreements. They fight over the car. They're kind of a young, passionate, fiery kind of couple. And, you know, one, one day Michelle goes off to work and Leo goes to band practice with his you know bandmates and she's supposed to come home at eight o'clock at the end of her shift. And she doesn't show up. Finally, like 945, she calls Leo and says, I'll be right over. Do you want anything from McDonald's? I'm coming over now. And he says, no, just come right over. Um, 15 minutes passed, a half hour, an hour, finally a couple hours go by and she hasn't shown up. Um, And she goes missing for several days. Um, Three days later, they find her body floating in a drainage canal. She's been stabbed 26 times. Um, You know, Leo spent the whole three days out looking for her. He was frantic. He's calling the police, calling the jails, can't find her. And you know, but they don't have any evidence. They can't really solve this crime. And then um, a year and a half later, um, Leo gets charged with murder and is arrested and thrown in jail. He has not been out of jail ever since. And that was back in 1987.
1: An incredibly long time to be in, in prison for something that, you know, There's, I would say that there wasn't even enough evidence to go to trial. But, you know, one of the main things that kind of was one thing that pointed towards Leo for, um, the prosecutors was this supposed, um, dream or, you know, uh, eureka moment that his, his father supposedly had about where her body was.
0: Yeah. And that was one of the things that hurt Leo so much in the trial because they didn't have any physical evidence connecting him to the crime. There was no witness that saw a murder. All they had was a circumstantial case. Um, uh, but they had a couple weird things happen. And one of them was the father, you know, after a three day search, the father actually finds the body of Michelle and the state kind of made it sound and twisted it to saying like he woke up in the middle of the night and he had this vision of where Michelle was. And then he led police to her body. which That's not what happened. What really happened, if you look at the transcripts and the evidence, is he was part of a methodical search with friends and family. He just happened to be the one that find the bo- found the body. And after he found the body, he said, a vision from God led me to the to the body and he sort of tried to put some kind of like religious uh tone to it as if you know god had led me to the body but he didn't say that until after he found the body but the state sort of makes it sound like he woke up in the mm. middle of the night and had this vision which really wasn't the case
1: mm. and before we get into kind of i guess the whole focus of the podcast you end up speaking to somebody who potentially is the the actual killer and and you know gives a lot of interesting confessions to write the series but one of the things that you know ended up as part of the trial was this you know supposed um argument that he had had with his wife michelle in in their caravan that night
0: right and that was another weird thing because you know a couple of days ago and when they found Michelle's body, they started canvassing the neighborhood and none of the neighbors had heard anything that nothing except this one neighbor who lived across the street and she said that she woke up and heard a sound she looked outside she saw Michelle and Leo fighting. They went to the trailer she heard a long uh, prolonged fight inside the trailer and then about 20 minutes later she saw Leo carry something heavy out of the trailer and place it in the back of their Mazda and saw Leo drive away. And this became the state's main evidence. Once they had this, um, they began to put together the case. And so when you look through the trial, it's it's really a fascinating moment in reading the transcripts because she's the only one who said she saw anything um and and, and she's, you know adamant that this is what I saw. I saw Leo carrying something heavy, looked like a body, but her next door neighbor was her sister-in-law and her sister-in-law testified, to the fact that, yes, we did see him carry out something together, but that was a week or two before Michelle went missing. She goes, I remember because I know what day I worked. And that's when we had the conversation mm-hmm. about it. And, and she said, I'm very sure it was that date. It was not the date that Michelle disappeared. And Alice Scott, the witness said, well, I'm not very good with dates. I just know what I saw, you know, but she couldn't pinpoint a date. But with that evidence, it was really what really convicted Leo. We had a really good, aggressive prosecutor that prosecuted, you know, Leo aggressively. And then he had this defense attorney, Jack Edmund, who, you know, was kind of this country bumpkin kind of guy who didn't really – He didn't really do any preparation, didn't interview any witnesses. He just said, I like to shoot from the hip. I don't have to prepare. You know, I'll just, I'll just answer. I'll just ask all the questions and cross-examination and figure it out that way. And he just got completely overwhelmed by the prosecutor.
1: Yeah, the, the, his defense attorney, I would love to listen to a podcast series on its own, just about that guy, because he seems like a really interesting kind of TV sitcom character almost, but like, he's just sounded like the most bizarre uh, kind of Saul Goodman sort of lad just rocking in to, to defend this guy on, on a murder charge. Um so another part of the obviously the, the 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 testimony and the evidence that was that was brought in there like there was an actual police officers who were able to contradict Alice's story, right? They had actually seen Leo during the time that he was supposedly at his trailer pulling out this this body and this carpet cleaner and
0: yeah, that's the thing that's so maddening is because when once Alice Scott pinpoints the time and says, I saw him coming out with the body. She pinpointed that. Well, at first she said it was between two thirty and 3 AM. But then I think when she started to the prosecutor talking to the prosecutor, it moved more to like one Cause it had to fit mm. the timeline because Leo was driving around town, making phone calls. He didn't have a phone in his trailer. So he's calling the police station. He's, he's calling all the friends and neighbors. Um, He shows up at Michelle's father's house and I can't find Michelle. So his, his, His movements around that night are pretty tight and very well documented. At one point, he pulls up to two police cars with some cops inside and says, you know, I'm trying to find my wife. I filed a report and that's all documented. So it really made a very small window when this crime could have been committed. Um, So he really would have had to be in two places at once because he's really well documented that night.
1: Mm, and which is possibly one of the most frustrating parts of the case is that before we even, again, get to this kind of other character, all the evidence is there. Just there isn't enough. I don't understand how they weren't able to find reasonable doubt.
0: Well, you know, that's the thing. I think it was one of those things where you you, you just mentioned the Better Call Saul kind of defense attorney. And he just got completely overwhelmed. He was confused. He couldn't remember the names of witnesses. and. John Aguero, the prosecutor, just kind of made fun of him. He says, the, "My my counterpart, the defense attorney, doesn't know this case that well. I know everything. I know everybody's name. You can trust me." And I think mm. he just overwhelmed the defense. So it w- it wasn't really a shocker that you know a, an unprepared defense attorney is not able to defend his client. He missed some really crucial parts of the evidence by not looking at the police reports at one point leo said i made a phone call at 2 a.m to michelle's grandmother and i talked to her aunt at the house um that's documented they went to the house and, and documented that phone call um and leo doesn't have a, a phone in this trailer so he couldn't have been in the trailer when alice said um mm-hmm. but jack edmund leo's lawyer never saw that report so he didn't even know about the two o'clock uh, phone call
1: Hmm. So then we move on. Um. You know, he's he's in prison for a long, long time. And then there's some new evidence emerges in the case. Right.
0: Yeah. And that's like the strangest part of the story, because, you know, I, I started working on this. It's a wrongful conviction case. But, you know, wrongful conviction cases happen all the time. But mm-hmm. this one kind of stands out because 17 years after Michelle was murdered they find these unidentified fingerprints inside the car. They were there the whole time, but they were never identified. And Leo's lawyer never bothered to have them tested or request that they be tested. So they just kind of sat there in evidence, untested. And 17 years later, they now they have more sophisticated um, criminal uh, fingerprint identification system. They run the prints and they come back and they're a hit. And it's not a tow truck driver. It's not a homeless guy. It's not, you know, one of the police or Leo or any of that. It's this man who's currently serving time for murder in a Florida state prison. And he lived about a mile away from Leo and Michelle. And so now they have this person who's forensically tied to the crime scene. And lo and behold, a few years later, he actually confesses to the murder. Um, So I don't know what more you would really need. You have a confession to a crime um, from a man who's killed multiple people and Mm. he's confessing to the crime. And yet Leo Schofield is still in prison.
1: It's yeah, it's bizarre. Like, it's quite compelling as well that it's not just anyone. It is a guy who's who is a murderer and is in prison for murder. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. And he's you know, he, he was known to be in that same area where Michelle and, and Leo lived. And he also, the strangest thing is we we found his girlfriend, his old girlfriend from back then. And she says, oh yeah, that's the same place where I used to go with Jeremy. We used to make out back there in that same exact place. So he was returning to this same The scene of the crime, basically, with other girlfriends of his. It's it's a really creepy kind of thing. And that was really what sort of drew me to the case is like, how could this, there's total evidence, there's no evidence connecting Leo to the crime, but there's evidence connecting this convicted murderer to the crime.
1: Mm. And there's, there seems to be plenty as well, not just physical, but also circumstantial. Um, like you said, can, you know, that when it, he used to go to this place where Michelle's body was found with, with his ex-girlfriend, can you tell us a bit actually about um, how, you know, because Jeremy did admit that he had been in the car with uh, Michelle that night, how they came to meet on that fateful night?
0: Yeah. Well, Jeremy at the time had just gotten out of prison for another, he got acquitted for another murder charge. Um, And so now he's free and he returns to this part of Lakeland and he's walking around this section called Cumby, which is sort of a high crime area where where he kind of spent a lot of his time. And that's where the restaurant that Michelle worked at. And so after Michelle's shift, she went across the street, um, made a phone call to Leo. And later on that night, Jeremy comes walking down the road and he sees this girl at the payphone. He describes it. And, you know, he's very specific about this. He says, she said, she thought she knew me. I didn't recognize her, but she said she knew me. Um, And she asked what I was doing out here in the rain. And he said, I'm trying to get a ride. And so that's how he got into the car with Michelle. Michelle offered to give him a ride because it was going in the same direction. But instead of taking him back to a trailer, um, he ended up directing her to this little drainage canal behind the tree line uh, where he used to take his girlfriend and that's where michelle's body was found
1: and you know he he also kind of michelle when she was found she like you said she had been stabbed to death um how did her murder come about what happened what led to them going from you know giving her a li- giving him a lift home to she's dead
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I think he was very specific about this and and he, he talked about this multiple times and we finally sat down with him and just got really specific with him. And, and, you know, it was, it was really interesting to watch because you could tell this was a person who was dealing with memory. He wasn't just making things up. He was very uncomfortable talking about this. And, you know, he said he got in the car with her and she said, where are the houses I don't see any houses back here. And he says, Oh, this is a place where we come to make out. And he says, Michelle says, I'm married. And he says, Oh, great. And he reaches in his pocket to get some cigarettes or a joint or something. And, uh, he says his knife falls out and she sees the knife and starts to panic. And she starts like saying, get away from me and start hitting him. Um, and he says, at that point, I just lost it. And he says that I stabbed her. Um, he, you know, one of the interesting things is all the blood from Michelle, it wasn't found in the trailer. It was found right on the side of that road. Um, like two big pools of blood that had dried up. Um, I'm pretty convinced that what happened is he attacked her. She tried to get out of the car. He says she fell out of the car. I think he came around then and just finished her off in the dirt right there because she had stab wounds. And on the front of her body and in her back. So I think he really did all the damage to her right, right there, uh, beside the car, because they didn't find mm. any blood inside the car, um, but it was all right there outside where the car would have been.
1: Mm, which is bizarre that you know if she was stabbed to death, and they're 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 saying that it had happened that he's saying it happened in the car, that there was, that there was no blood, which is one thing I picked up on in, in the, in the series. I was like, then where was all the blood? But it's just now that you're saying, yeah, that they, they, it's kind of near the end of the series nearly, we find out all kind of all the details that, yeah, there was blood out the, out the side of the car. Um, but one of the things as well, I mean, the, the series has been incredible. Did you expect it to kind of skyrocket the way it did. I mean it's it's international. It's everyone I know here in Ireland is listening to it. It's it's gone global. Did you expect that?
0: Not at all. You know, I this is the first podcast I've ever done. And I I, I knew it was a really interesting story and we spent years investigating this. And I, you know, I felt like, wow, this story is really coming together in a really interesting way. It was almost like we had two podcasts. We had Leo's story and then we had Jeremy's story. And we're trying to find a way to merge that. Um, and I, I wanted to do something like a parallel narrative that I would normally do in my books, but it just didn't mm. work chronologically. So it really needed to be like at the end of episode, episode four, after the trial, after Leo goes to prison, you find out that these fingerprints don't match Leo. They match this you know, mur- person who's m- murdered multiple people can um, confess to multiple murders. And that sort of starts us down this other way. Like, who is this guy? Who is Jeremy Scott? And and that was part of the, the hardest part of the um, research and investigation because – you know, when we when we dove into Jeremy's world, we found out that a lot of the, his associates and friends that he used to hang out with were all like either dead or in prison. Um, and mm-hmm. so it took a long time to find people that we could talk to about it. And sure enough, this picture emerges of this extraordinarily violent, impulsive young man who was, you know, it was just a matter of time. He, he had killed four people within a period of like two and a half years. Um, and, you know, one time he got caught Taken to trial and he got acquitted. Um, so he's back on the streets again and he's still killing and still doing all sorts of horribly violent things.
1: Mm. And Jeremy, obviously, you get to speak with him as part of the the series. What was that like? Kind of, you kind of do speak about it in the podcast, what it was like, you know, you're anticipating going in to meet him. And, and what is that like? Because I can't imagine what it would actually be like as much as we talk about and write about these people on a daily basis. What would actually happen if you came? Face to face with the killer.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that was very new for me. And it was very new for Kelsey, who you know had never been into a prison before, and like it's her first job out of college. And here she is sitting next to a a, a convicted murderer who's mm. extraordinarily impulsive and dangerous. And every time we'd seen like investigators or or um, defense attorneys or any, anytime he was questioned, he was always handcuffed to the table, or at least there was a guard in there. And mm. this time we show up at the prison and like, they just let him in the room with us and walked away. And so here we are sitting with this guy and, and, you know, that's when it kind of hit us like, Oh no, we're here. And we're, we're not going anywhere and nobody's watching us. It's, you know, and, and this is a guy who's attacked nurses, guards, police. He just, he's extraordinarily impulsive, mm. but, you know, I think there was a, the, one of the things we tried to do was just sort of he he wanted to tell his side of the story. We weren't interrogating him. We were just letting him tell his narrative. And I think it was kind of this cleansing thing for him that we weren't judging him. We were just sitting there and, and asking him, you know, about his background and how he felt about certain things. And, um, he felt, he seemed really docile and really interested in in speaking to us he wanted to be heard um and you you heard how emotional he was when he was talking about his past and he's mm-hmm. absolutely tortured by it um and that that was really the the really fascinating part was like he he went from this really dangerous individual that we expected to sit with to a person who was completely broken and just looking for something to to survive in prison and i think he believed that by just being truthful and maybe giving some kind of closure to Michelle's family and and also to, you know, Leo, to possibly help Leo get out of prison because it was weighing on him.
1: Like when you do come of it, obviously when you come into these things, you know, this man has obviously done very, very, very horrible things in his life, but you do see how... People in the prison system in the United States, especially, kind of get broken down and dehumanized. You know, you're, there's a lot of talk about how he can only use the, you know, the prison admission soap, and he doesn't have really anyone there to give him money to get extra things, or he can only eat the, the canteen food and stuff like that. And he seems to be very broken down. His spirit seems to be very well down by that, and that's kind of it's almost he kind of uses that as well as part of why he. I mean, he confessed and then he unconfessed and he reconfessed um, and he kind of at one point said, you know, what's in it for me, but it just seems like maybe that he was, you know, was he actually looking for something to be in it for him or was that his way of, of you know, um, trying to take back what he had said?
0: You know, I think it's interesting because I really looked through that really carefully and, and you know, at one point he says, you know, I'll confess for a thousand dollars, but He says that after he's already confessed, you know, he doesn't say that before he says it afterwards. And when he's trying to deny that he confessed, I never saw him as recanting, really. I always felt that he was just, you know, he, he was. You saw him in the witness stand in in in, I think it's episode seven, where they're trying. He's confessed now in court to killing Michelle, and the prosecutor is trying to say, you know, basically, you're crazy, you're 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 unreliable, and she's Mm. just hammering away at him, saying, you know, your grandmother's dead, right? You're not getting, you're never getting out of prison, and and you're a liar. You don't, and and they're not interested in finding the truth; they're just interested in destroying his credibility, and they basically say you cannot believe a single thing Jeremy Scott says except when he says he didn't kill Michelle. That you can believe. You can trust us on that. It makes no sense.
1: No, no, it doesn't. And one of the things as well, I guess, that kind of was interesting to me is, would you think that even without Jeremy Scott's confession, um, is there enough for leo to have some sort of retrial or some sort of you know not even a retrial but his his sentence be overturned or you
0: know you you would think so that's why one of the things that uh, leo's attorneys are calling for is they want to take it out of this very rural polk county um, Mm. and get it to the hands of a conviction integrity review unit in another county and basically let an independent um prosecutor's office look at this case and come away and i i'm convinced that any prosecutor's office any conviction integrity review unit that looks at this case will come to the same conclusion that we have that it's leo's innocent of this crime and it's jeremy scott the man who's confessed and the man who's forensically linked to this murder is the real killer um but unfortunately for leo um once the fingerprints were identified um Je- jeremy denied killing michelle at that point and so the state said we believe him and and so that that appeal was gone. Then later on, years later, he confessed to the murder, um, and then they said, "Well, you can't believe him because he previously denied it." Um, and so he, that is new evidence that's been a court has ruled that it's not it doesn't rise to new evidence because Jeremy Scott is not a reliable witness. So Leo is out of legal options at this point. There's nothing else that can come in that would really help him. Now he's just hoping for either a pardon from the governor, a clemency from the clemency board, or getting paroled and if he gets paroled he's still a convicted murderer in the eyes of the state of Florida
1: Mm, which is tough you know great you're right but you're still you still have this hanging over you and will do for the rest of your life and I suppose as well there's got to be a lot of emotion in it for Leo in the sense that you know the the potentially the the real killer of his wife I mean all this time he's been locked up for it but without actually knowing perhaps the, the real truth that um of what happened because you know at the end of the day he's still lost his wife and his family still lost their daughter, their sister.
0: Yeah, and it's the, one of the real tragic parts of the story. Is like nobody has any empathy for Jeremy Scott, and Leo is the only one in this story who has any empathy for the, his wife's murderer. And I think it's interesting because, you know, mm-hmm. after after all these defeats in court, and he just realizes I'm gonna I could spend the rest of my life in prison. And he's filled with this bitterness and anger. And he says, the only way for me to survive is to just find some way to forgive Jeremy. He says, I can't forgive Jeremy for what he did to Michelle, for for Michelle's family. I don't have that right to do that. But in order for me to survive, I have to let go all of this anger and frustration. And the way I'm going to do it is to pray for Jeremy Scott and to pray that God forgives him. He's a very spiritual man. And so there's a scene where he goes into this war room, which is like a a prison chapel, basically. It's like the size of a closet. And he just starts praying for Jeremy Scott, you know, doing it for himself so he can really Mm -hmm. get over this. And other inmates start praying for Jeremy Scott. And that's when he learns like a few days later that Jeremy Scott has confessed. Um, And so it's just really, it's a really powerful thing of, of this story. We sort of followed Leo's lead. Cause a lot of people listen to this and they, they don't feel just sorry for Michelle and just for Leo. They actually feel sorry for Jeremy. And uh, that was a strange thing that we didn't really see coming, but that really, we Mm -hmm. took the lead from Leo because that's the way Leo felt. And that's how Leo chose to look at this story. And so we sort of followed it in that direction. And I think it makes it really powerful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the whole series was kind of emotive in in, in different ways. I think it was by, the I actually started crying by the third episode when Kelsey is looking at the DNA, or not the DNA, she's looking at the evidence um, and she just comes back into the car and breaks down into tears. That really hit me because I was like, wow, like, she really, you know, was thinking this could have been me. This could be my friends and family. You know, With obviously there's a huge epidemic of violence against women. And she kind of really understood that um, and really got that. And that was really powerful. But again, throughout the whole thing, even at the end, when you go to, you know, a special guest at the concert and, you know, it really is it's a very emotional um and I found I connected to it myself with with the with the podcast on an emotional level, and did find myself feeling sorry for Jeremy just with the you know being beaten down by the prison system and Is that a lot of the kind of feedback you're getting from people?
0: It really is you know I think it's just like these moments they're they're on it really honest and raw like we we didn't really know what we were doing when we were doing this podcast, so we kind of kept the tape running <laughs> all the time. We were always debriefing and just talking about what we saw just to sort of remember it. And I remember we were about to debrief about the evidence room and going in and seeing these autopsy pictures of mm. Michelle. And, and, you know, at this point, you know, we had known people who'd known her. We'd interviewed, you know, her family members. She kind of became real to us. And we talked to her friends and everything. And, you know, I'm a kind of a jaded guy that's been around. I've seen a lot of crime scene stuff, but Kelsey is kind of new to this and mm. it really hit her in a visceral way. And, you know, we were trying to debrief, but she just couldn't stop crying. It all just kind of hit her. And she held it together in that evidence room really well. But it all came out then. And I remember thinking, do we want to really use this? because it's, it, it could be seen as manipulative or something like that. And we talked about it and I was kind of the only one who was kind of against it. Everybody said, this is real. This happened. We're not trying to manipulate anything. This is a real moment and a real mm. reaction. And instead of having to use words to talk about the tragedy of Michelle's death, it just comes out in that, you know, the, those tears in the car, like it became real. And mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of moments like that in the podcast that become very emotional and very visceral and, um, and it's it's a story that we used a lot of heart to tell. It's not just fact after fact after fact, it's how these crimes really affect people.
1: Absolutely, because like myself and like a lot of other people who binge listen to, to True Crime podcasts, you know, you're going about your own day, you're clean and you're thinking about what you want to do for dinner, you're going for a walk, you're, you know, going to work, whatever it is. And I, I think I think I was actually clean in my bedroom. And then that happened. And I actually sat down. And I was like, wait, hold on a second. And it really hit me. And I think that is definitely needed in these series is because at the end of the day, it is somebody's family. It is somebody's loved one. While it might just be a story to you know, the listener, the, you know, the person who is actually involved in this, this is a, re- this is the worst day of their life.
0: Right. And that's one of the things when you go around, like we were just constantly going around trying to talk to people who knew the characters. And, mm. you know, it was one of those things we're in this part of Lakeland, Florida and, you know, we're interviewing, you know, young, well, they're not young anymore. This is 30 something years ago, but they had, they were 13 year old young women, young ladies really, who had two children. And you know, we were seeing that constantly. Or We'd go around everybody was going to prison or, or murdered, or they were pregnant at 13. Mm. And it was just a very, um, it, it, just sort of hit you. Like these are real human lives and you can see how they were affected by the violence in this story. Um, so it's not just moving from like violent act to violent act, but it's dealing with the aftermath and the pain and how many lives have been transformed, um, throughout the story. And really at the hands of Jeremy's violence.
1: Mm, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite the tale. So tell us then what about, what is next for Leo? What's going to happen next in the story? Is it just a waiting game to see what happens?
0: Yeah. I mean, I can tell you that the response has been really overwhelming. And one of the things I talked to Leo about, cause I always felt really conscious about this. Like, yeah, I wrote a book you know, 10 years ago that came out and it ultimately led to the exonerations of the Groveland Four, the people I wrote about, but that took 72 years. And like, I didn't, I do not want Leo and his family thinking that I'm going to take on the case and everything magically is going to happen. And Leo will be out Mm -hmm. of prison, exonerate. Like, I don't have any confidence that that's ever going to happen. That's how little uh, hope I have for Leo's case. But I said to Leo, the one thing I can do is I think with this story is I can change the narrative. I can show that you're innocent of this crime. And that's the thing I can give to you, but I cannot promise you that it's going to be enough to get you out of prison, but I'm going Mm -hmm. to tell your story in a more factual and more concise way than the state did. And I remember one thing he said to me at the end, you know, we've already finished the podcast and I, I still keep in touch with him all the time. And, you know, he said, Gilbert. You know, the one thing you always said to me is you think you thought you could change the narrative, and I I know you have. I I know you have changed the narrative. Um, and he goes, I I'm not in a position to give you anything. There's something I want to give you, and I can't give you anything. He said, the only thing I can give you is that for the rest of your life, you're never going to have to worry about this case coming back on you in a bad way. I've given you the truth, and that will mm. always be there. You're never going to have to worry about it. And I thought, you know that. That He didn't need to say that, but it was just another way of saying like, I'm an innocent man. And it just really resonated with
1: me. Mm. And thank you as well. And how is he obviously feeling about the the reaction that he's, that the podcast has gotten? Was he expecting it or how is he getting on in prison now kind of knowing that the world knows his story?
0: You know, it's kind of sad because he's not heard the podcast. There's just no way for him to hear it. And so he's had like family members have read parts of it to him. And, and, but the one thing that's really, really amazing is that um, a lot of the people in the prison have listened to it. And so like administrators and guards, they don't usually talk about what you're in for. They don't even talk about mm. that stuff. They're like, he said, people come up to me Gilbert every single day and they go, Leo, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. I just want to hug you. And he's just people are just apologizing for him and hugging him. Um, he says like, on visitation days, other family members from other inmates are coming over saying, I listened to the podcast. You know, I, I, I just cannot believe you're in here in this prison. You don't belong here. And, outside vendors come in and tell him the Mm -hmm. same thing and people he's known for decades. And so he's just getting all this affirmation in his life that people believe him now for the first time. Like he he's always been seen as the convicted murderer and they don't talk about this stuff and nobody believes you when you say you're innocent. So nobody brings it up, but now people are coming up to him and saying these kind of things. And I think it's really changed his attitude On, Mm -hmm. on the downside. Um, I think every time an article comes out that talks about the case and they go to the state of Florida for a response, the the state of Florida says, we we feel like we got the right guy and Leo Schofield's uh, a murderer and he shouldn't get out of prison. And that really triggers him just hearing those responses. And I, I thought about that. Like, I'm used to it. I know what the state's going to say. They're going to stand by this conviction forever. We all know that. But he feels it viscerally and emotionally. Like, the state does not believe me. They're the only people who seem to not believe me. Um, mm-hmm. And it just really triggers him. And it's it's really painful to see because, you know, he he's a very emotional person. And, and he just wants to be believed. And by the state saying that, it just seems so cold and cruel to him.
1: Of course. Yeah. And, like, it seems like, obviously all this kind of, attention not attention, but I suppose more the the understanding and empathy that's coming from other people is probably giving him a lot of hope.
0: It, it really does give him a lot of hope. And I, I just think it, he just feels differently within the prison now. He just feels like people believe him. He's not not being gaslighted anymore. And, mm. you know, he does believe that the truth has gotten out there um, for the first time. Um, and that lifts his spirits. But then he'll go into this thing and where he just thinks, you know, but that might not be enough. You know, his parole hearings... Here's here's the interesting thing about Leo. He was sentenced to 25 years to life. Um, he was spared the death penalty. Um, he has served 25 years, 10 years ago. So he's been up for parole three times already. He has a spotless... You know, disciplinary record in the prison. He just doesn't do anything wrong. He's a leader in the prison. He's got multiple college degrees. He's a model inmate. And every time he comes up for parole, they go over this. And then the state says, he's never apologized for killing his wife. He's never said, I'm sorry. He's never shown any remorse. He cannot be released back into society. And this has happened three times in a row. Every two or three years, it happens. And he's up for one more of these. And I... You know, I think it would just absolutely break him because he says, I could just go in there and and lie and say, okay, I'm sorry, let me out. You know, he could say it. He goes, I just will not do it. I will never admit to something that I didn't do because I'm not going to. Michelle wouldn't want me to do it, he says. And he says, I just can't do that. He says, people around him just say, just Leo, just say it. If that's all they need to hear. But he's so adamant. He just says, I could go in there and lie about it. And would that be enough to get me out of prison? All you are asking me to do is lie about this and I can get out of prison? It makes no sense to him. He says, it's easier for me to do the time than to live with this lie.
1: Mm, That is quite the predicament to be in I guess then if he's only got one more chance and you know obviously I I don't know how they'd expect somebody who's you know claiming their innocence to obviously uh, apologize but if that is their stance that they believe that they have the right man then obviously that's why they're 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 asking for that um but do you think maybe with the podcast and kind of his story really being told on on such a global platform that perhaps there could be kind of a, a a different view taken to him the next time
0: I think so. I think that his next parole hearing, which will be coming up in a couple months, um, we're going to be covering it. I know there's going to be, you know, big media. I, I know mm-hmm. I've been hearing from a lot of people who listen to the podcast saying, just put out the date and we'll fly over there. We're going to stand outside that courthouse and we're going to we're going to be a presence. And um, you know, Judge Scott Cup, the, the man who gave me the business card, he just recently resigned his seat on the bench. Um, and just said, I want to go back to being Leo's lawyer. And so he stepped away from his judge, which he could have been there for another eight or nine years, but he Mm. said, I just can't take it anymore. I I just have to keep fighting for Leo. And he goes, I don't want to do this. I need to do this.
1: Mm. That's, That's quite powerful as well.
0: It really is. And so, you know, I think people are kind of optimistic that, you know, come on, Leo, he served, he served his sentence. He's served almost 10 years past his minimum sentence. He definitely mm. deserves in the, in the terms of parole, he's met every requirement. Um, it, 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 confessing, to killing his wife is not part of the requirement it's just an emotional thing that gets thrown into that hearing um uh, by the state attorney or or one of the representatives but it really has no bearing on the hearing they don't have to pay any attention to that it's not a requirement it just keeps happening though
1: Mm. and so like you said you're you're going to cover obviously the 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 updates in the trial so um what is next though for for gilbert and kelsey are you going to take on another case
0: you know we really want to um we just had such a great time working together she was like, you know, I I don't think she gets enough credit for the, for this podcast and the work she did, you know, because she started out as a very young researcher. And then all of a sudden we transitioned to doing a podcast and she had to learn how to do sound and audio recording and all of that. Um, but she was also very heavily involved in every single step of the way from like writing Mm -hmm. and editing. She knows the case better than anybody else, um, Honestly, she's the keeper of the facts we call her. And you know, and and you can see like there's moments when, when she shows up at the parole board and she interviews the the um state attorney and you know, yes. he tries he tries to say a few things that aren't quite true and she calls him on every one of it. And I just love that moment. When I first heard that tape, because I couldn't be there that day. I was like, oh, this is the Kelsey I know. She will not let anybody get by by saying something that's not correct. And so she's correcting this yeah. guy.
1: It's absolutely brilliant because she does go in. She's like so nervous. She's like, will I be nervous and like take him, you know, it'll put him off guard? Or should I like be a bit more confident myself? And it, it did it turn it out. It turned out so well. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us today, Gilbert. So make sure you go and check out Bone Valley. Thank you.
0: It's my pleasure. Really pleasure having this conversation. Thanks so much for having me.